Good morning, Christchurch family and friends. Uh, this uh, last week, if you were with us virtually, uh, we celebrated Easter. Uh, it might not have been the Easter that you would have imagined, uh, being isolated, not being able to be together. And as James reminded us, so many of the uh, traditions of Easter were in many ways stripped away. We weren't able to do all that we might normally do, but we were left with all we need, the Word The Word has power. We were left with Christ, and Christ risen. And that is what we celebrated. And praise the Lord, that is all we need. Now, we still find ourselves in a pandemic, and we still find ourselves isolated. And we're maybe coming to the point where uh, it's setting in a bit. Uh, We're settling in. And I don't know about you, but it's not fun. We don't like it. It's not what we want, Uh, but it is what we must do for now. But I think it's highlighting a couple of things, at least in my own mind. And as I talk to people, it's highlighting a couple of things. And one of those things is that uh, it's highlighting the fact that we were made for relationship Uh, when we are sort of cut off from one another. Uh, it highlights the fact that we need human interaction, real human interaction, more than just a a screen. It also highlights the fact that uh, we often find ourselves lonely. And it's in a time like this that that may rise to the surface. Maybe it was underneath and we were able to mask it or cover it up or or pretend like it wasn't there. But it's in times like these that it, it sort of rises back to the surface. It may be one of the most common human experiences is loneliness. And you might say, well, I'm not lonely. I'm, you know, those who are living by themselves alone, they might be lonely, but I'm not lonely. I've got people around me, and, and I'm, I'm busy, so I'm not lonely. Um, I know I find myself thinking that sometimes. Well, I'm, I'm busy, but sometimes busyness or doing things or Telling ourselves that we're not lonely is simply trying to mask it, to cover it up, or or to fix it. Um, What if we aren't meant to fix our loneliness? What if we are meant to press into it and allow Christ to use it uh, to change us? You see, just prior to Christ's uh, triumphal entry, we, we, we celebrated Palm Sunday two weeks ago, and then Easter... And that was Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, to where a week later he would be uh, crucified on a cross and then raised from the dead. But prior to all of that, the the last recorded event uh, in Jesus' life, as we look back at Luke, is that he went through another city on his way into Jerusalem. He went to Jericho. And what did he do in Jericho? Well, In Luke 19, it's recorded there. He went to visit a very lonely man, a man named Zacchaeus. And what happened to this lonely man? His loneliness wasn't necessarily fixed, but he was changed. He was changed by his interaction with Christ. So if you will go with me to the Word of God in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, we will take a look at this event, this interaction that we have that we're uh, discussing together this morning. Luke 19, 1 through 10, this is God's word. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. 
and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to, the, to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want to pray uh, and give God uh, thanks for his word and ask him to guide us in this time. Father, we ask that you would speak. We thank you that you have given us your word. And in your word is power because you have inspired your word for us. So, Lord, may I be out of the way and may your spirit speak in power. Uh, Transform us, Lord. May we become more and more like your son Jesus as we receive your word. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, the, uh, the, amidst, amidst a virus pandemic, I, I think there is another one going on. Uh, one that's, I think, been raging for, for years and years and ages and ages. And I think it is the loneliness pandemic. Again, it's something that may rise to the surface right now with all this going on. Now, you probably aren't keeping up with your uh, British government news. <laughs> I don't know why you would necessarily, but if you have been, <laughs> uh, over the last few years, you would have heard about uh, what might sound like a rather odd uh, government position that was created about two years ago. Uh, Theresa May, who was the prime minister at the time, appointed the first minister for loneliness in the British government uh, named Tracy Crouch. Uh, Beginning in uh, 2018, the prime minister received reports about uh, the many millions of Brits who were lonely. And so she appointed this new position. And nine months after that appointment, the, the government, they rolled out a strategy to address the issue. And it was things like a nationwide adoption of uh, of a way to measure loneliness, if that is possible. Uh, involvement in the arts and the creation of, of community groups for people who are lonely. Uh, social connections through uh, community spaces and uh, creative transportation, housing and technology, which is what we're finding ourselves using a lot uh, these days. Uh, public health campaign that raises awareness uh, and reduces the stigma surrounding loneliness. After this was all rolled out, about a month later, uh, Crouch hands in her resignation from the position over some frustrations over the lack of movement within the government. In comes the second minister for loneliness, who announces 126 programs to deal with loneliness. Fast forward about six months to the summer of 2019. This, uh, This individual changes positions, and in comes the third minister for loneliness. And another two million pounds is announced to be thrown towards the issue of loneliness. 
I gathered this information from an article that was written in January of this year, 2020. The title of the article was, Two Years After Hiring a Minister of Loneliness, the People of the UK Are Still Lonely. Now we're four months into a pandemic where we're having to be isolated, and it's only exacerbated the issue. And Brits are not the only ones that are lonely, by the way. This is a worldwide thing because it's a human issue. It's the most common human pain we might experience. The question is, what do we do with it? Is it something to fix? Can it be fixed? Can it be fixed by hiring a government position and uh, government policies? Is it fixed at the local level? Is it fixed at the individual level? Is it meant to be fixed? Loneliness, I believe, highlights one need, uh, one need we can't seem to meet for ourselves. It's the one need that others fail us in, uh, the need that we try to always fill with things, sometimes destructive things and sometimes really good things. Those things often only make it ache more. It's the need we either are painfully aware of or choose to ignore. A need so big and so powerful that it can only be filled by something or someone who's infinite. It's that deep ache of the soul that uh, we don't really want to feel. Uh, sadly, there are many, there's many help, self-help messages out there, both secular and religious. Uh, many even that come under the name of Christianity that would say, uh, you can have your best life. You can have a blessed life now. You can, your pain can be relieved by the Christian message. And we hear those things and they sound good and we like them, but deep down we know it just doesn't take away that ache, if you know what I mean. It doesn't relieve the pain fully. It, it might temporarily, but in some ways it makes the, the, the pain ache more. Because we go about our lives and we come back to the fact that, oh, that didn't quite fix it. Until long enough, we may allow ourselves to just grow numb or, or turn it off or try to turn it off or ignore it. What if we let ourselves feel the ache, the longing? What if the Christian message isn't about relief, but about change? What if... That change isn't for our circumstances or even the pain or the ache that we feel, but what if it's more about the core of who we are that is the change? Could it be that loneliness is something not to be fixed, but to be pressed into and, and perhaps even cultivated? <laughs> what if it becomes a window into joy and contentment that turns our Turn, that turns us outward, that turns us from that inward focus to an outward focus. What, what, what could cause this change in us? Or perhaps who could cause this change in us? Well, I think we have something to learn from this little interaction with Zacchaeus and Jesus and the crowd, by the way. Loneliness causes us to feel lost, don't know where we are. Uh, loneliness can also cause us to seek, or we seek something out that will maybe change that feeling. 
And it causes a longing in us ultimately to be found, which is some of the things that we see in this passage. We see lostness, we see seeking, and we see someone who's found. And even those words are in the passage there. We see Zacchaeus seeking to see who Jesus is. Uh, We see Jesus say the statement at the very end, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I want to work through those three things. Lost. What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to seek? And what does it mean to be found? First, what does it mean to be lost? A a friend of mine says that he thinks the mother of all questions in terms of what it means to be lost, that that, that all human beings are asking in some way is, where am I? Where am I? Where do I stand? Where do I stand with this person? Where am I going? Where is my life taking me? Where am I? I think he might be right, and I think he might be right because we see if we go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, Genesis 3, we see that very question, where, where are we? Where am I? God comes into the garden after Adam and Eve have uh, rebelled against him, and he comes one day and says, where are you? Now God, he knows all things. He knew exactly where they were. I think he asked it so that they might consider where they are, that they might wrestle with that question, where am I? An author that I recently read puts it this way. Ever since Adam and Eve had to leave our perfect home in the garden with God, we have lived in an unnatural environment, a world in which we were not designed to live. We were built to enjoy a garden without weeds. That'd be nice relationships without friction, fellowship without distance. Again, we're feeling the distance right now. But something is wrong and we know it, both within our world and within ourselves. Deep inside we sense we're out of the nest, always ending the day in a motel room, never at home. When we are honest, we see we handle our discomfort by keeping our distance from people or clinging too closely to people responding more to our fears rather to an, another person's desire for love. You hear the, the, the tendency towards self-focus that we all can identify with. I can identify with that myself nearly every day. The question is, where am I? I was talking with a friend just earlier this week about this quarantine and uh, and she was identifying the fact that it often causes us to wonder, where do I stand with people who are closest to me, perhaps? My friends, my family, the people that I'm not getting to see right now. Uh, perhaps you're Zooming or Skyping or FaceTiming with some of those folks, but it's even, have you noticed that it's even in the, the body language that there is so much communication that takes place that we can't fully even get through a screen And when we're isolated, when we're separated from that human interaction, it causes our minds to wonder, and we wonder, where do I stand with this person? I don't know. I haven't seen them. I haven't talked to them. I haven't had real interaction with them. And we worry, where am I? Where do I stand with this person that I love, that I care about? Lost means we don't know where we are. Where do I stand? Who am I? Zacchaeus was lost. In a crowd of people, he was lost. See, we can, 
Someone can, be, can feel lonely in, uh, in isolation, physical isolation. Sometimes we can feel lonely in a room full of people or a house full of people uh, because loneliness is more about, I wonder if anyone really knows me. I wonder if the people that even are nearest to me know me. Zacchaeus was lost, lonely in a crowd of people, and he knew it. He, began, he, he at some point, it seems clear that he knew that. Now, uh, let's talk for a minute about Jericho, where he lived. If you don't know about Jericho, it was, a, uh, it was the place to be in that time. It was a beautiful city. Uh, the weather was great. Uh, it was sort of like maybe living at West Palm Beach, Florida. It was just the place to be. And it was also uh, a place of commercial opportunity, economic opportunity. It was a major trade route uh, between cities in that part of the world. And so it was a great place to make money, and it was a great place to live. And Zacchaeus was sitting at the top of the money situation. He was the chief tax collector. He probably had one of the nicest, nicest houses in the city. He was sitting at the top of that. But the issue with his job was that he worked for an occupying enemy. Uh, and he extorted money as a tax collector to Uh, pass that money along to that occupying enemy who was Rome, Roman Empire at the time. It would be a little bit like perhaps if ISIS were able to get a foothold in our community here and they uh, gained authority and rule here in our area and then they hired out people that we know in our own towns uh, to extort and collect money from us for for ISIS. It would be a little bit like that. So you can imagine... Uh, the hatred, the animosity that would go towards that person that we knew that lives in our own community. This was Zacchaeus's situation. And they despised him, as we can see, as they grumble when Jesus goes in to be his guest. They thought, we know this guy. What is Jesus doing? I know this guy. He is, he is a crook, and he's collecting money for the enemy. We know this guy. Why is Jesus going to his house? But did they know him? Did anyone know him? Did they know his thoughts? Did they know his longings? Did they know that they were from, cut from the same cloth that Zacchaeus was cut from? Did they know that his name means righteous one? Imagine that, carrying that name knowing what we know about Zacchaeus. Imagine the longing that his parents had in their hearts when he was a child and they gave him that name that means righteous one, that their hopes were that he would be a righteous man. I wonder if that fed the soul ache, that longing that that he would be able to live up to that name and that he knew that he had not, but wishing that it would somehow be true. Did anyone really know him? Did they know how lonely he was? Did did they know, did the crowd know that they were lonely? And that they've only masked it with perhaps busyness, like we often do. Or masked it by saying, hey, we're okay, we're all right, we're not as bad as this uh, Zacchaeus guy, we're not as bad as this tax collector. Did they really know him? They just knew a lot about him. They knew enough to 
to, to say, hey, he's not with us. He's not in our camp. He's a, he's a bad dude. I don't like him. What takes us from being lost to then seeking? You see, some know that they're lost. Some know that they're lonely, and some do not. Zacchaeus came to the place where he was asking the question, Where am I? Where do I stand with others? I feel lost, and, and he knew it. He knew that he was. He knew that he had to go run ahead and get in that tree if he was going to have any opportunity in this crowd because nobody was going to say, oh, Zacchaeus, come on up, man. Come on up, buddy, and stand right next to me as Jesus walks on by. He wasn't going to have that invitation, and he knew it. Who really knows me? Zacchaeus knew that all this stuff he had amassed for himself, all this money, all this wealth, this nice house, it, it wasn't doing it for him. And he needed to go see, who's this Jesus guy? And it's, we see that the crowd grumbles when they see Jesus going to be a guest of Zacchaeus. And I think it showed that they didn't see their lostness. You see, their reference point for themselves was, Hey, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as him. Jesus should have come to my house. Why is he going to Zacchaeus' house? They perhaps haven't tapped into that deeper soul ache. They've masked it or quenched it by telling themselves they're okay. Kind of like the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus told in the prior chapter. Perhaps you know are familiar with that parable in Luke 18 where the Pharisee and the tax collector went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee said, I thank you, God, that I'm such a great guy. I tithe, I do everything right, and I'm not like this tax collector over here. And then the tax collector prays without even lifting up his eyes and says, well, have mercy on me, a sinner. This concept of, hey, I, 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 at least I'm not like this tax collector, really comes out of this sense of rivalry. We all have this sense of rivalry or comparison where we, we want to measure ourselves against someone else. And if we can come out looking a little bit better or having the scale tip up for, uh, in our favor, uh, we, we feel better. And it comes out of this sense of rivalry, which comes out of the sense of who's going to look after me? I've got to take care of myself. Rivalry, unfortunately, often leads to loneliness because it pits us over or against others. We ultimately find that we're lonely, and it's probably where Zacchaeus started. It was a sense of rivalry. He probably saw the opportunity when he was offered this job as chief tax collector. He thought, man, I can make some money. I'll be the wealthiest person in the city, and then I'll be better than everybody, and everybody's going to love me for it. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. Or maybe I can make lots of money and I can trust in myself. I'll be able to take care of myself and I won't need anyone. Maybe we take on that mentality sometimes. But Zacchaeus found out where it led him. And it's ultimately where all sin leads us. Because all sin comes out of the human heart. The human heart that cannot trust God to, to take care of our joy. We feel like we've got to produce it for ourselves. And we've got to get it where we can. And so we look after self. And therefore we are unable to see beyond ourselves oftentimes. And that is what sin does and it leads us to a lonely place. 
Some know they're lost and lonely. Like the writer of Psalm 88, that psalmist ends the psalm by saying, my only companion is darkness. That's a pretty bleak statement to end with. Sounds like depression. Sounds like loneliness. It's in Scripture. The psalmist there knew he was lonely, knew he felt lost. Perhaps it's like the prostitute who crawls to Jesus' feet, weeping and washing his, her, his feet with her tears. She knew she was lost. She knew she was broken and lonely. And it's that awareness of lostness that leads us to seek. But what? What do we seek? What are we seeking? What does it mean to seek? Well, the seeking led Zacchaeus uh, to climb a tree, which was a really odd thing to do for a really wealthy guy. It would have been like today, perhaps going to uh, downtown Birmingham and seeing uh, a wealthy businessman in a three-piece suit climb up a tree to see uh, some parade pass by, perhaps. It would have just looked kind of weird. But he did that. The question is, why? We find the answer to that in verse 3. Verse 3, it says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see who he was. I think the main question that we might ask ourselves when we are seeking is, who are you? Who is this person? Can I trust you? Can you fill the deep chasm in my soul? I uh, was talking to a new friend of mine uh, er, this week, um, and he was just sharing that he had come recently out of a, a, a broken relationship that was really painful, and he had really wanted it to work. And he said he tried perhaps too hard to make it work for himself, and he ended up finding himself now asking questions. Who can I trust? Uh, can I even trust that I'm going to be better, that I'm going to be okay? Um, my friend struggled with uh, various addictive tendencies. If we think about it, so there, there are addictive tendencies that can be really destructive and, and sort of blatantly out there, but we all kind of have addictive tendencies that maybe are more subtle than others. We all have ways, we all have coping strategies, we all have things that we do to mask pain to mask the pain of seeking and not finding, to, meet, to not being able to fill that deep chasm that is infinite. Uh, it's like throwing a pebble into the Grand Canyon and you just sort of hear it clang a little bit at the bottom and you realize that that's a big old place, that's a big old deep chasm, and that did not fill it. Maybe one of the most common coping strategies is uh, the devices we carry. It's kind of odd that we... Uh, have a, a phone, and we call it a phone these days because so seldom do we use it to make a phone call, and so often do we use it to, uh, to peer out into the world. Maybe like Zacchaeus did, peering out out of that tree to see, who is this Jesus guy? I want to see him from a, a safe distance to see if, can I trust him? Will he meet that need that's inside? Social media has, has, has changed us in how we interact. Uh, wh- whether we know it or not, it has changed us. Uh, it could be that this, this time of quarantine or isolation maybe is revealing some of those things that, 
this social media thing, the internet, the, the peering out into the world with, with, it, with it just being a one-way thing, maybe that's, that's not doing it, and that's also being exposed. Perhaps that's so, perhaps so. Um, I, I recently ran across, a, this week I ran across a Wall Street Journal article. It's a secular article that named this reality. The, the title of the article was, uh, The Internet Can't Save Us in a Pandemic. And this is one of the statements that I found in there. It's, it's rather bleak, uh, but we can look beyond the bleakness if we know Christ. Let me just read this. It says, Even a communication with a high level of social presence can't be depended upon to cure the gnawing hunger for human connection that bears its yellow fangs when we least expect it. Who among us has, hasn't logged into Skype, Zoom, Google Hangouts, etc., and gazed upon the screen full of other people on their laptops and felt, if only for a moment, that flickering existential dread? This is how I will die. Alone and under less than flattering light, In an age of remote everything, the underlying feeling is that how we choose to live our days is how we will end them, hunched over a screen, pressing refresh until the very end. Again, it's rather morbid. But I think it names something that we do feel, something that we sort of look out there and think, what's going to to scratch that itch? And it's not saying that social media and the Internet and Zoom and all that are are not good things. They're very good things. And we can be very thankful for technology, that we can stay connected in this time of quarantine. But again, it's this time of quarantine that has brought some of those things to the surface. The desire for relationship, human connection, and loneliness that pushes us beyond uh, everything else that we've been experiencing. It just can't meet the deeper soul ache. Zacchaeus uh, likely did not plan on speaking to, Z- to Jesus that day. We don't know for sure, but it's probably pretty clear that the fact that he climbed a tree uh, to see him was just so that he could maybe see him from a safe distance. Like Zacchaeus, we often want to run up to the, right to the very edge and just stop and see, can I, can I trust you? Do I... Do you really know me? Do I want you to know me right now? Uh, before the Internet, before social media and all those things, we, uh, there was a study, uh, I think it was in the 50s, that came out to, and released this term called parasocial. And it was related to the, around the time when the radio and then television was, was, became a thing, was invented. And, and scientists realized a, a, soci- a social reality that was happening where people began to bond with uh, celebrities that came into their living rooms through the TV. And they realized it's a one-way uh, relationship. And so we were hearing everything from this person that we were bonding with, but they don't know us at all. Don't even know our name. Zacchaeus thought uh, it would help uh, to just go get a look at Jesus. Say, who is this guy? I wonder if I can trust him. I just want to get a look. I want to see if I can uh, maybe benefit from just seeing him and seeing him interact with other people. Again, we don't know. We can't get into the mind of Zacchaeus. It'd be fun to ask him one day. But what Zacchaeus probably never imagined was that he would be found by Jesus. 
He never would have, I, I doubt he imagined that that would have happened that day. So, comes to our third question of what does it mean to be found? What does it mean to be found? Imagine, again, being in Zacchaeus' shoes that day. He probably thought, hey, man, look at this. I got a great spot. I found the perfect spot in this tree. I got ahead of the crowd so that, uh, you know, they can't, uh, they won't be able to see me. I got ahead of them before they saw me. I can climb up in this tree. Nobody's going to see me here. I'm not going to look silly, but I'm in this tree and I got the perfect spot. And Zacchaeus was sitting there in that tree until the moment Jesus was walking by and then Jesus stops. Zacchaeus probably thought, why did he stop underneath me? What's going on? Oh, I think he saw me. I think he's looking at me. Oh, now everybody's looking at me. What am I going to do here? Everybody sees that I'm in a tree. What's going to happen? What is this Jesus guy going to say to me now? Will he rally this crowd and stir up a frenzy and call me out as a tax collector? They, what if they start throwing rocks at me? What if they start spitting at me? What if Jesus says, hey, you tax collector, come down here now and you're gonna, we're going to tell you how awful you are. We're going to make you pay back everybody that you've cheated here. What if he says that? Maybe that's what Zacchaeus could have thought. Maybe that ran through his mind in that split second between the time Jesus saw him before he spoke. Again, we can't get into the mind of Zacchaeus, but we can imagine. But that's not what Jesus said. And we know that because we have this account here before us and we do know Jesus' words to him. Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus. And he speaks his name. And even just that is powerful. To have someone speak your name, especially someone you thought didn't know you. I doubt Zacchaeus thought that Jesus knew who he was already. And that highlights something right there. While Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, Jesus knew him before the foundation of the world. And that's true of us who know Christ. That's something to encourage, to be encouraged by that Christ has, has your name before the foundation of the world. He knows you. He's, he knows everything about you. Every intricate detail. The things that you don't even know are in the crevices of your heart. He already knows it. And he knew everything about Zacchaeus. He spoke his name. And he says, come down, Zacchaeus. I must stay at your house today. Now, that really probably would have thrown him. I don't know, maybe Zacchaeus for a moment like stumbled and almost fell out of the tree out of surprise. But he comes rushing down with joy to receive Jesus. Do you think Zacchaeus had ever had a guest in his home? I wonder. I wonder what that would have been like to have maybe had the nicest home in town, but then have no one in town that wanted to come to your house to be your guest because everybody in town hated you. The only thing that happens when people walk by your house is they may spit at it. That would have been probably Zacchaeus' experience. He never would have had a guest of his own. But Zacchaeus came down, uh, no long, probably no longer caring about what the crowd thought of him, and received Jesus with joy. Now, did that soul ache go away? 
Did the loneliness go away? I don't know. Probably not. But something more powerful pressed into his life. Because it was a man who was perfect, who was God, who knew everything about him and said, I'm coming to be your guest. I'm coming to your house. The question for us in this is when Jesus presses into our lives, when he says our name and he comes into our lives, can we allow ourselves to receive or experience that kind of joy that Zacchaeus allowed himself to experience? Might we be afraid to allow ourselves to experience that joy of saying, I know me, I know how wretched I am. And wait, this Jesus knows everything about me and he still wants to press in. Can I let myself feel that joy? Maybe we, we guard ourselves from that joy, worried about what people will think if we allow ourselves to experience it. Or maybe we're afraid it will be taken away. Maybe we're afraid we'll be let down. There's a lot of reasons we might guard ourselves from experiencing joy, joy that Jesus offers. But can we let ourselves experience it as Jesus comes into our lives? Now, the crowd, meanwhile, grumbled. Again, we've talked about that. They grumble. They say, hey, we know this guy. Why is Jesus going to be the guest of a sinner, such a guy like this? Now, it's a picture of pride. As we look at our own hearts, do we see any of that? Maybe not as explicit, but if we're honest, I think we have to admit we do. I I see it in my own heart sometimes. I see that kind of pride. And it can be just, it can be just another type of loneliness or lostness even. You see this passage, and Jesus himself splits people into two categories. Uh, Those who humble themselves and those who grumble, (laughs) the proud and the humble. You see, Jesus didn't come to this world to make bad people good. He came to make lost people found people. And what happens when we are found? What happens? Well, we're changed, as we can see in this passage. And I think the mother of all questions when we are found is, what about them? Because you see Zacchaeus respond that very way in verse 8. After Jesus comes to his house, we don't actually get to see much of the interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus. It would been nice to, but we're intentionally left without all that. We just see Zacchaeus stand up and speak to Jesus and say, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone out there in that crowd that was just grumbling about me, by the way, Anyone out there of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. When we are found by Jesus and joyfully receive the companionship of Jesus, we are freed up from our loneliness to lean into the world for others, to lean into their world. And our questions go from, where am I? What about me? To, where are they? What about them? Do you know that companionship of Christ? That companionship that sets us free, that doesn't uh, relieve the pain, but turns us away so that we can feel that pain and be able to step in and feel someone else's ache and enter into their world. It won't do to just know about Jesus 
or even to just know him as the Savior. We must, you must know him as your Savior. You must know that he paid for your sin and that he has come to be your companion in your loneliness. The gospel is not, go, not here to fix our loneliness. It brings us into a community of people where healing takes place, not because wounds are cured or pains are alleviated, but because wounds and pains become openings or occasions for a greater view of Christ. Mutual confession becomes a mutual deepening of hope, and sharing of weaknesses becomes a window to enjoying Christ as our strength. My friend I mentioned earlier, uh, he serves uh, as a sitter uh, for those who are uh, suicidal. It's a heavy thing. Uh, and that's a loneliness that is so often, that's, that is, that's, that's, call, that's caused by loneliness, those feelings. You may have heard of the, uh, the semicolon project. Uh, it was meant it came out to raise awareness for depression and suicide prevention. Uh, another friend that I talked to recently uh, shared with me that uh, he's got a, a little small tattoo that's the semicolon. And he said that, that uh, marks his own story of his, experiencing, uh, his experience of being bullied that led him to depression and thoughts of suicide. But then he showed me another one that represented Christ, and he said, Christ is my beginning and end. It was an alpha and omega symbol. He said, he's my beginning and end, not this experience of loneliness and depression. I don't want that to be my end. I want Christ to be my beginning and end because he is mine and I am his. Knowing Christ may not relieve the ache, but he changes us. So that, that we feel that ache, and that ache turns us towards others who also feel that same ache. Christ himself felt that ache when he shed drops of blood, when he was praying in the garden, considering what was about to happen to him, that he was about to be separated from his father, that his father was about to turn his face away from his own son for us. For, for you and I. The, Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, the, the purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. That man of understanding is Christ. He, he dives into those waters, he explores their depths, and he draws it out of us. And then we are able to, when we are connected to Christ, when we are united to Christ, when He enters into our lives, He brings us with Him into other people's lives to dive into those same deep waters with them because we've come to terms with that, that ache that we feel. And again, it is the fact that Christ experienced it Himself, that His Father turned His face away from Him. But it's through those wounds that Christ experienced that we are healed. So I encourage you, brothers, sisters, and friends, to allow Christ to come and be a guest in your, in your life, in your house. 
He's pressing in. He's coming in. And allow yourself to feel that ache. So as he comes in, you receive him. And you can receive him with joy. And allow yourself to receive him with that kind of joy. So I want to encourage you to allow Christ to press into your life today, this week. And while we are in this quarantine and we feel this sense of loneliness and desire for relationship, Christ can and will be a companion. I want to close us in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for sending your own Son who, who knew the ache of loneliness and desire for relationship uh, and felt the pain of the loss of it far more than we can imagine. And he presses in. He comes into our lives. He comes into our homes. Lord, help us to receive that companionship with joy. Help us to come to terms with the ache that we feel, that that ache would take us to uh, a greater longing for Christ, a greater embrace of His companionship, of His Lordship, and that that would turn us outward, that we might be pressed into the lives of others, knowing that they experience the same ache that we do. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his relationship. We pray these things now in his name. Amen.